evidence and answers. Scientific discoveries regarding the origin of the universe and the origin of life on Earth fit nicely with the Genesis creation account. In a recent Evidence and Answers Apologetics conference, Dr. Hugh Ross responded to many of the students' questions. You're tuned to Evidence and Answers radio broadcast with your host, Pat Zucran. Pat is an author, teacher, and international speaker in the area of Christian apologetics, the defense of the Christian faith. Continuing on with our series of the 2023 Evidence and Answers Apologetics Conference, Dr. Hugh Ross explained how the creation events of the Genesis account are confirmed by scientific discovery. Now, here's Dr. Hugh Ross. Here's the bottom line. The more we learn about science, the more reasons we gain to believe in Jesus Christ as Creator, Lord, and Savior, Job and Psalms. I'm going to devote the rest of the time to any questions you might have on science, faith issues, philosophy, the Bible, uh, anything goes, and we'll just take questions spontaneously uh, from the floor. We're not going to screen your questions. So uh, who would like to be first? I actually have a question. So from what I understand, the old earth, new earth kind of right. controversy, so it seems like your position is that the earth is really old is that is that correct am i correct in seeing that or? yes but let me put that in context in the early part of the 20th century there was a old universe young universe debate it ran on for 50 years and the core of the debate was people were beginning to discover the big bang and they said that only gives us billions of years that's not enough time to sustain an evolutionary interpretation of life on planet earth so the majority of astronomers at that time were promoting an old universe view where the universe was many quadrillions of years old. And they actually thought that they could have stars burning for trillions and trillions of years. Uh, but as we moved into the second half of the 20th century, we realized there's no black dwarf stars uh, in the universe. It takes about a trillion years for a star to become a black dwarf where it becomes completely burnt out. And then the evidence for Big Bang cosmology became overwhelming. So I'm a young universe astronomer. I believe the universe is only 14 billion years old, not quadrillions <laughs> of years old. And yes, that's a problem for Darwinian evolution and neo-Darwinian evolution, because both those models require far more time than just billions of years. But in the context of Christianity, I'm aware there's a debate. Are the days in Genesis 1 24 hours? or are they consecutive long periods of time? Not infinitely long, but long periods of time. The first thing I would say, this is not a salvation issue. It shows up in none of the creeds of the church. And as a pastor, I've been telling people, yes, we should fight over what's in the creeds. Those are the essentials of the Christian faith, but we should never divide over the non-essentials. And I'm persuaded that this young earth, old earth controversy will be resolved, likely in our own lifetime. And when it is, God will replace it with another church-splitting controversy that's got nothing to do with salvation. And that's no joke. Every generation of the church has been struck with a church-splitting controversy that has nothing to do with salvation. You see it recorded in the book of Acts, chapter 15. The church was deeply split. Do you have to be circumcised? 
Now, what I find interesting too, all of these church-splitting controversies are basically people within the church who really don't want a particular people group to get involved in the church. So in the first century, you had Jewish Christians saying, last thing we want are these Gentiles joining our church. So they came up with a doctrine that made it difficult for Gentiles to become Christians. And you see that in the letter that uh, was uh, written. Don't put a stumbling block before the unbelievers. And I think this young earth, old earth debate is really targeting, hey, the last thing we want in the church are these highly disruptive research scientists getting involved in our... And I've seen that in my own church. Because our church is only a few miles from Caltech and the Jet Propulsion Laboratory. And we frequently have had scientists come into the church and they cause a disturbance because they challenge everything that the pastor says from the pulpit. And they're not being mean-spirited. This is how they learn. In fact, I remember in the Sunday school class I taught, six bachelor physicists from Caltech came. None of them were believers. And uh, you know, we were looking at the book of Titus, and uh, one of the Caltech physicists jumped up and said, I'm going to defend this interpretation. Another one stood up and said, I'm going to defend, and they debated one another so vociferously that everybody was convinced that they were enemies of one another. They said, no, this is how we get along. We're friends. This is what we do. And by the way, none of us believes what we're defending. So, <laughs> but yeah, I think we need to be welcoming all people groups into the church. But people being the way they are, we tend to have these issues. And it's been going on for 2,000 years. I think it's going to continue to go on until the Lord returns. That's a great perspective. Thank you, Dr. Ross. We do have a question here. Have you ever heard of the firmament? If so, can you explain what it is? The firmament is uh, something that comes out of the Vulgate. That's a Latin translation of uh, the Greek and the Hebrew Bible. And so that's where the word comes from. And I, I've just written a book that's basically on the two books, how God reveals himself in the book of nature and the book of scripture. And I got a whole chapter in that book that'll be out in a few months on the firmament and what it means. It's actually the core of a major debate today because people look at you know what it says on creation day two, water above and water below. And there are theologians out there saying, we think this was borrowed from the Babylonian creation myths. And in those myths, they have this solid dome over the earth with water above the solid dome and then water below. In both cases, it's liquid water. And if you look at the book of Job, it's basically telling us liquid water on the surface, water vapor in the clouds. It's not liquid water above and liquid water below. But this is what's been going on there. And so some of the later translations, this only happened beginning in uh, the 21st century. So some of the latest Bible translations are translating the word firmament or expanse. I mean, uh, the 1984 New International Version says that, you know, we have water in the expanse and the birds fly in the expanse. But the latest translation, the 2011 New International Version, it says there's a vault over the earth. But then they got the, I mean, birds don't fly in a vault. They fly in the sky. What bothers me are these theologians claiming for 19 centuries, Christians got Genesis completely wrong. Only today have we got it right because we have all this insight from these 
newly discovered tablets from the Babylonian era. But the Babylonian creation text only gets two out of 14 right. And by the way, as I looked at the Babylonian accounts, they made a distinction between their scientific literature and their fantasy literature. And this vault over the earth is part of their fantasy literature. It's not their scientific literature. And the Babylonians were irrigating their agricultural fields. So they knew there was a limit to how far up you could pump water. It's only a few feet. You can't pump it up thousands of miles. So they knew enough about the science to realize that the vault was a scientific impossibility. But just like we have fantasy stories that are scientifically incredible, have you ever watched Star Wars? Have you ever watched Jurassic Park? Have you ever watched Star Trek? I mean, my sons always get annoyed with me because I tell them how many times per minute the laws of physics are being violated. But we know how to make a distinction between fantasy literature and scientific literature. The ancients did as well. So like you, I grew up in a secular household and came to faith when I was mumble mumble years old. And you mentioned that the beginning of the universe implies a creator. And I noticed you used the word implies rather than necessitate. I had a similar conversation with a physicist not that long ago, and we ultimately came to a detente. He said that if you go back far enough to the beginning of the universe, that it is so theoretical that it is impossible to prove definitively either way, whether God created the universe or whether it poofed into existence because the experiment is not repeatable. Therefore, speculation is not science. So my question specifically, now that I, you have this ages of background, is it possible to prove to, say, a hypothetical physicist specifically that these two views are not equally probable and valid, but that the universe had to have been created? Sure. And when I've used the word implied, I'm basically saying if the universe has a beginning, there has to be a beginner. There has to be a causal agent. Uh, what your physicist friend is pointing out, however, is that we have observational proof and experimental proof for that beginning that only takes us from the present moment when the universe is 13.8 billion years old back to when the universe is 10 to the minus 43 seconds old. That's where we know that the space-time theorems definitively must apply. And so what you have is a number of theoretical physicists saying, well, between t equals zero and 10 to the minus 43 seconds, that's one ten millionth of a trillionth of a trillionth of a trillionth of a second, we can speculate. Because that's where experiments and observations can penetrate. And uh, the core of these non-theistic speculations is that in that early era, quantum mechanics may play a bigger role in determining the dynamics of the universe than gravity does. And we haven't got the measurements to prove otherwise. And so, but in order to get around the space-time theorems, the quantum space-time fluctuations in that extremely early moment of the universe must be big enough to be able to allow a loophole around the space-time theorems. Now, it turns out that your physicist friend is incorrect when he says we have no observational checks and what's going on in the quantum gravity era. I use the word era loosely, it's 10 to the minus 43 uh, seconds. We actually do have some observational checks. 
because the quantum space-time fluctuations in that very early era get magnified in the images of quasars and blazars. Quasars and blazars appear in our telescopes as point source images. But if the quantum space-time fluctuations in that early era are big, they get magnified as light travels from that distant quasar to our telescope. And so astronomers have actually made measurements of these distant quasars and blazars, and the images are sharp. If the quantum space-time fluctuations were big, those images would be blurry. Now, the measurements have only been done to quasars out to three billion light years. I've been trying to push my astronomer friends, let's push the limit out to 12 billion light years, because that would give us a much stronger constraint. And the constraint is strongest at short wavelengths. So let's do it at short ultraviolet wavelengths. Those observations have not yet been done. But the observations that have been done eliminate the two major categories of uh, atheistic speculations about the quantum gravity era. Now, if you want to read about it and see the citations, they're in the fourth edition of The Creator and the Cosmos. And I also cite a paper written by Aaron Wall. He's a Christian theoretical astrophysicist who basically said, if the space-time fluctuations are small enough, and we simply assume the second law of thermodynamics holds uh, throughout the whole history of the universe, the space-time theorems hold all the way back to t equals zero. But I did include a chapter in the fourth edition of the Crater in the Cosmos titled, Non-Empirical Arguments for God's Non-Existence, basically making the point Science has advanced to such a degree today that the only arguments left for the theists are those that are based on pure speculation without any experimental or observational support. Yeah, non-theists. So the non-theists have to speculate on what we don't know, and my whole point is we have to base our beliefs on what we can know and measure. For that same reason, I cannot give you absolute proof that I exist. I can only give you practical proof. We human beings do not have absolute proof of the existence of anything. This was proven by Kurt Gödel in 1930. That doesn't mean we don't have practical proof, we just don't have absolute proof. You know, I married my wife without absolute proof that she exists. I still don't have absolute proof that she, that she exists. But after 40 years of marriage, I have way more experimental and observational evidence of her existence today than I did back then. Good answer, Dr. Ross. I'm not too sure if I, answer, if I understood any of that. <laughs> I don't think I even understood the question, but that's okay. We have another question here. Hi, Dr. Ross. In speaking of the fine-tuning argument, you talked about how we are in the only location in the universe that is able to observe the origins of the universe. And I was wondering if you could explain how we know that we're in the only spot that can do that. Yeah, that's covered in uh, why the universe is the way it is. It's not the only spot where you can observe the entire history of the universe, but it's the only spot where life is possible that you can observe the entire. So that's an important copy. There are other places because there's huge voids in the universe where you can make those observations but those are locations where life is not possible. So, yeah. And so, for example, what I do in Why the Universe is say we would be in trouble if Mars and Venus were to switch places. 
because now Venus would be so bright in the night sky that we wouldn't be able to see distant galaxies. I mean, it's one thing to have the moon up there, but, you know, we astronomers wait for a moonless night. But if we had to wait for a night that was both moonless and, and no Venus, it would be very challenging. And so I basically talk about how we need to be in the darkest part of the universe where advanced life is possible. So, but I've got a whole chapter on that if you want to read the details. Okay, here you come. Hi, thank you for speaking to us tonight, Dr. Ross. Uh, my question is just like uh, clarifying a definition. So you mentioned that our sun has really good luminosity stability. Right. Could you explain what that is? Okay, yeah. Stars are like human beings. They're unstable when they're young. They're unstable when they're old. They're maximally stable when they're middle-aged. But the good thing about us human beings, our stability period is most of our lifespan. For stars, that's not the case. For the vast part of a star's uh, lifespan, it's way too unstable for advanced life. I mean, there's a reason why you only have microbes for the first three billion years of life history on Earth. The sun wouldn't permit any other kind of life form to exist. The oxygen is not there either. What the sun is doing, when it's really young, it's got a huge amount of flaring activity, a huge amount of uh, particle radiation that would be sputtering away our atmosphere uh, and our ocean. And it's got a lot of ultraviolet and X-ray radiation. And you say, how much? Well, for the first half billion years of the sun's history, the deadly stuff is about 100,000 times more intense than it is today. And you say, well, how wide is the window where you've got an intensity that permits human beings to exist? It's about 100,000 years wide. And right now, we're about halfway through that window. So, now, you can have trees existing earlier. You can have bison existing earlier. If you want humans with high-technology civilization, where we have a large population of billions, you need an extraordinarily stable sun uh, with very little flaring activity and uh, only long wavelength ultraviolet radiation penetrating our atmosphere. So we're in that window right now. And also the sun gets progressively brighter as it gets older and older. And so that basically explains why the history of life on planet Earth must look exactly the way it is. Because what God does, you see this in Psalm 104, it's a property of all life to die off, but God recreates and renews the face of the earth. So as the sun gets progressively brighter and brighter, God removes life forms from planet earth that are relatively low in their efficiency of removing greenhouse gases from the atmosphere and replacing them with life forms that are a little bit more efficient of pulling greenhouse gases from the atmosphere. And right now on planet Earth, we have the life forms that are the most efficient at pulling greenhouse gases out of the atmosphere. And so the temperature of the surface of the Earth has remained uh, relatively constant throughout the past 3.8 billion years because of this carefully tuned removal of life and replacement of life. And you'll, uh, you'll see a chapter on the luminosity variation of the sun in improbable planet. And main, my main point is only a mind that knows the future physics of the sun, the earth, and the moon would know which life to remove and which new life to replace that old life with. 
And that's something my evolutionary biologists, professors that I know, have not studied. I basically challenge them saying, if you want to understand the history of life on planet Earth, you must bring solar astrophysics into the, into the solution. Adaros, thank you again for speaking. I feel like one argument I've heard is, um, although like your example of winning 150 California lottery tickets back to back with one ticket is very like improbable, it's not theoretically impossible. And because, you know, with like the size of the galaxy and whatnot, the infinite, there's like near infinite amount of like retries and whatnot, like theoretically it's possible that not by intelligent design, but by chance we would have like stumbled upon to this like perfect combination. And I was just wondering like if you have a response as to like that. Okay, well that fine tuning uh, paper that's online, you know, reasons.org slash fine tuning, it's based on the presumption that there are 10 to the 24 planets in the universe. So we take into account the huge number of chances that the universe applies. Uh, and even then, you get those incredibly uh, improbable uh, probabilities. Now, I've been speaking on this subject since the early 1980s, but I remember in the 1980s telling audiences, eventually the evidence for fine-tuning will become so pervasive and so overwhelming that the atheists have nowhere else to go but to hypothesize that there's an infinite number of universes, not just a universe with you know, a trillion, trillion stars and planets in it, but an infinite number of universes, and they also would say each universe is different from every other universe. And therefore, we have all these fine-tuned characteristics, not because of God, but because of pure chance. Now, what I write about in the Crater in the Cosmos 4th edition, I quote Leonard Susskind. He used to identify himself as an atheist theoretical physicist. He now refers to himself as an agnostic. But he was the one who said years ago, we atheists have got to stop using the multiverse. It's an argument that explains everything. An argument that explains everything explains nothing. And it has to do with infinity. You know, I remember telling audiences back in the 1980s, if an atheist has to appeal to infinity, they've got nothing. And it's because infinity times infinity is infinity. Infinity to the infinity power is infinity. So if you've got an infinite number of universes that are all different from one another, you'll have an infinite number of planets identical to planet Earth. And if you've got an infinite number of planet Earths all filled with life forms on it, you're going to have an infinite variety of birch trees in an infinite number of universes. And birch trees have the property that they peel thin white pieces of bark. But if you've got an infinite variety of birch tree species, one of those species will peel thin white pieces of bark that are perfectly rectangular that measure eight and a half by 11 inches. And these pieces of thin white bark will fall on soils with random chemicals in them that'll make random markings on those pieces of birch bark, which will duplicate all the paragraphs, equations, diagrams, and photographs in every scientific paper that's ever been published, which means those millions of scientific research papers didn't come from the minds of scientists, the multiverse did it. And so that's what Leonard Susskind is pointing out. If you're gonna to appeal to the multiverse, you're in a philosophical trap. Once again, our time has come to a close. Thank you for joining us here on Evidence and Answers Radio Broadcast. We hope you enjoyed today's show. 
If you would like Pat to speak at your church, Bible study, or even schedule an apologetics conference at your location, give him a call in Hawaii. That number is 483-0586. Or you may contact him through the Evidence and Answers website. That's evidenceandanswers.org. We have a wide variety of different topics that will make for an incredible conference series. Be sure to use our search engine for available resources. We have everything from atheism to Zen Buddhism, including articles and additional audio free to listen to or download. So be sure to share our website with those around you. To keep quality broadcasts like Pat's on the air, we rely on generous financial support from you, our listeners. For the opportunity to partner with us, head on over to our website. That's evidenceandanswers.org. And you may do so right there online. Evidence and Answers would like to thank one of our sponsors, the Honolulu Christian Church. If you don't have a home church and are looking for a great place to connect and grow in Christ, check out the Honolulu Christian Church. For service times, log on at honoluluchristian.org. Join us again next time on the air or online as we provide compelling reasons for faith in Christ. That's Evidence and Answers with Pat Zucran. But remember-